Good morning, Bethel. Good to see you all. It's so good that we can come to Jesus, all of us who are weary and heavy laden, and find rest for our souls um, and encourage each other to uh, come to him. So if you can turn to Psalm 116, this passage, one verse in this passage is actually quoted in uh, 2 Corinthians 4, which is the passage Tyler's going to be preaching this morning. So um, it's appropriate to read this as a compliment backdrop to 2 Corinthians 4. So if you're using the Pew Bible, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. Uh, This passage is found on page 510. 510, Psalm 116, I will read and then you can follow along with me. If you wouldn't mind, please stand in honor of God's word. Let's read this together. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed. Even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning, Bethel. So if you're new with us, or if you haven't been here in a while, we're currently in a series in 2 Corinthians called Cruciform Ministry, a cruciform meaning in the shape of the cross. The Apostle Paul's ministry certainly bore this mark, and in this particular letter to the Corinthian church, he's calling them to follow his lead in cruciform ministry rather than reject him, rather than run from it. So as I prepared to preach today, I was reading uh, David Garland's commentary on 2 Corinthians, and at one point, he compares the life of the Apostle Paul to that of Dorian Gray. I don't know if that name rings a bell to you, but he is a fictional character in Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray. So in that book, a man paints a portrait of Dorian 
and Dorian, who is young and handsome uh, and upset over the realization that he's going to grow old. He's going to decay. He won't always look like this. He won't always be young. He sees this picture, and under that realization of the future that's coming to him, he makes this statement. How sad it is. I shall grow old and horrible and dreadful, but this picture will remain always young. It will never be older than this particular day of June. If it were only the other way, if it were I who was to be always young and the picture that was to grow old, for that, for that, I would give everything. Yes, there is nothing in the whole world I would not give. I would give my soul for that. Well, tragically, he gets what he asked for with a twist. So he keeps his youth, he keeps his good looks, but the picture, that portrait, becomes a representation of his true self, which becomes more and more hideous as he gives in to temptation and indulges his flesh. So because of that, he takes this portrait that's growing more and more grotesque with the day, and he hides it so that no one can see it. So what people see is they see uh, beauty, virility, when they look at Dorian, but what they can't see is the ugliness that's on the inside, that's hidden in that portrait. So David Garland points that out because that is exactly the opposite of what is happening in the Apostle Paul and in the people of God. So as Paul puts it in our passage this morning, his outer self, his mortal body is wasting away. He suffers and faces affliction in his ministry, and there's no hiding it. But his inner self, that which is in Christ, that which is united to Jesus, is being renewed day by day. This reality, if you remember, it presented a problem for the Corinthians in the past. So remember that after Paul planted the church there, false teachers came into town and they pointed out his suffering. So they, they focused on his suffering, they focused on his affliction, his weak speaking ability, and the fact that he preaches for free, and they cited all of that as evidence to say that he's not truly an apostle. If he's the real deal, they seem to have argued, his life would reflect the abundance, his speech would reflect the eloquence of one who was chosen by God to minister to others. If he was legit, he wouldn't suffer like he does. He wouldn't be such a poor speaker. He wouldn't preach for free. That was a lie straight from the pit of hell. And unfortunately, the church bought it, hook, line, and sinker. So when it came to Paul, when it came to what they considered to be the right characteristics of an apostle, they looked at what was outside rather than what was within. And that was a big deal, not just because they rejected Paul's apostolic authority, but because in turning away from Paul, they were turning away from the gospel Paul preached. Just think about it. If the church won't follow Paul and his weakness and suffering, if they deny him for it, how in the world can they claim to follow Jesus? 
who faced affliction throughout his ministry and ultimately was crucified on a Roman cross. So thankfully, after Paul confronts the Corinthians over this in a tearful letter that uh, is now lost to us, the majority of them repented and they embraced Paul, but some of them, by the writing of 2 Corinthians, still had not. So in this letter, in 2 Corinthians, Paul talks a lot about suffering. He talks a lot about affliction. He explains why it's so prevalent in his ministry and why he keeps going in the midst of it. If you were here two weeks ago, when Chris preached on chapter 4, verses 7 to 12, you may remember that it came up there. We don't have time to look over that passage in detail today, but uh, to summarize it, Paul makes the point that he suffers. He carries in his body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be displayed to others. Christ died so that others might live, and as an apostle and as a follower of Jesus, so does Paul. He goes about the sacrificial work of ministry in his weakness, in his mortal flesh, in his jar of clay, and as he does so, God doesn't just sustain him, but God also powerful, powerfully mediates life to others through the gospel of Jesus as Paul proclaims it. So that's why Paul can say in verse 12 of chapter 4, so death is a work in us, but life in you. Now, in verses 13 to 18, our text for this morning, Paul continues his train of thought, and he gives at least three reasons, I think, why he continues to boldly proclaim the gospel in the midst of affliction. One, faith in God who raises the dead. Two, love for God and people. And three, renewed vision. So let's look at the first one together, faith in God who raises the dead. This is uh, chapter 4, verses 13 to 14. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's on page 966. He says, Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Key to understanding these verses is not only knowing that Paul is explaining what keeps him going in ministry despite affliction, but also that quote in verse 13. Did you notice those quotation marks there? That's a reference as, Pastor Chris said earlier, as he read earlier, to Psalm 116. In that psalm, the psalmist remembers a period of great affliction, and he praises God for bringing deliverance. He says in verse 3 that the snares of death encompassed him, and he suffered distress and anguish. But in spite of all of that, he didn't lose faith. No, in verse 10, which is the one that Paul's quoting here, the psalmist says, I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. He acknowledged the pain. He acknowledged the suffering, the distress, the affliction, but that did not mean that he lost his faith. 
Rather, he says in verse 4 that he called on the name of the Lord and asked him to deliver him, and God mercifully answered. God saved him. And so he praised God for it, and he thanked God in the presence of God's people. And Paul, who would have known the Psalms well, personally appropriates this. Like the psalmist, Paul too suffered affliction and had been in great distress. He too trusted the Lord to deliver him then and now, and he too desired the result to be thanksgiving to God. Listen to him express this in uh, 2 Corinthians 1. This is verses uh, 8 to 11. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. So do you see what's going on in chapter 4? Paul is identifying with the psalmist who trusted God to deliver him and spoke, and he is saying that he trusts God too, and he also will speak. Speak for Paul, meaning proclaiming the gospel. In other words, Paul is not going to let affliction stop him from ministering the word of God, from proclaiming Christ crucified, from doing the work that God has called him to do. And why? It's because of his faith, because of his assurance. And he says this in verse 14, his assurance that because God raised Jesus from the dead and brought him to himself, he will also raise Paul and bring him near. Do you see how powerful that is? Christ's resurrection guarantees that Paul will be raised from the dead and brought near to God. And because that's true, because Paul knows deep down in his bones that God is for him, nothing, no affliction, no trial, no weakness, no loss, nothing will stop him from ministering the truth of the gospel to others. And if anybody had reason to call it quits, to stop to conclude, you know, maybe this just isn't for me. It was Paul. That guy suffered. When he talks about weakness, he is an authority on the issue. He goes into this, and we'll get here later as we work through, chap- or as we work through 2 Corinthians, but he goes into this in chapter 11. Starting in verse 24, he says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship. Through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. He has faced affliction. So 
what enables him to put one foot in front of the other in the face of such hardship? It's his gospel hope. His belief that he who did not spare his own son will with him graciously give us all things. His confidence that nothing can separate him from the love of God. His assurance that God will never leave him nor forsake him. I pray that's encouraging to you this morning. You know, sometimes I think it can be hard for us to connect with Paul when he says things like this. His ministry is unique, right? And that he's an apostle. He saw the risen Christ and he was commissioned to be a minister of the gospel. There's a real sense in which that's just not true of us. But while this is true, while Paul is an apostle of the Lord in a, in a unique way, that doesn't mean that there's no connection with us. We are still called to follow in Paul's footsteps, whether we're pastors, whether we're missionaries, engineers, stay-at-home moms, students, medical or financial professionals, whatever, all of us, if we are following Jesus, are called to be ministers and proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of us are called to point people to Jesus. All of us are called to sacrificially lay down our lives on behalf of others. Yes, it won't look exactly like it did for Paul, but it will involve dying to ourselves, dying to our comfort, dying to our wants and desires for the glory of God and the good of people. And let's be honest, dying is hard. Inviting a neighbor or a coworker into your home to show them gospel, hospitality, and point them to Jesus isn't always easy. Living for Christ in high school, telling your friends about him, refusing to conform to this world isn't always easy. Sacrificing your wants and comfort in order to care for and shepherd your kids isn't always easy. Making an intentional daily effort to serve your spouse isn't always easy. Doing your best to meet the physical, emotional, spiritual needs of another isn't always easy. Giving up your time to serve others, the Sunday Breakfast Mission, Mary Campbell Center, Urban Promise, Door of Hope, is not always easy. Leaving your country to share the gospel with people you don't know, especially with people who might kill you, is not always easy. Serving your brothers and sisters here at Bethel, whether that's in the children's ministry, student ministry, women's ministry, men's ministry, whether that's on the missions team, facilities team, worship team, AV team, finance team, deacon board, trustees, elder board, whether that's in your community group, whatever it is, it's not always easy. So where do we get the power? Where do we get the motivation to stay faithful in these areas? It can't come from within. It's from the gospel. 
Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience to God for me on my behalf. He did what I have failed to do, and he died a sacrificial death on the cross for my sins. I should have to bear God's wrath for my sins for all eternity, but Jesus lovingly, graciously, mercifully did it for me, and God raised him from the dead. He approved of Jesus' sacrifice, and later Jesus ascended to the Lord's right hand and sat down because he completed the work that God called him to do. And the promise for me, the promise for you if you're trusting in Jesus, is that just as Christ was raised and brought near to God, you will be too. And nothing, nothing, no loss can separate you from your God, even death. That's good news. That is your motivation. That is your power. And the more we lay hold of the, the more we lay hold by faith to the gospel, the more we lay hold by faith to the rock-solid reality of our future resurrection in Christ, the more motivated, eager, empowered we are going to be to follow not just in Paul's, but in Jesus's footsteps, in cruciform ministry, ministry shaped by the cross. So keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep believing the gospel. Keep trusting God's promises to you. Keep clinging to the certainty of your future resurrection as a follower of Christ and let that motivate you to sacrificially lay down your life for the glory of God and the good of others. So Paul's faith in God who raises the dead enables him to keep ministering in this way, to keep proclaiming the gospel in spite of the affliction and the suffering he faces. And so does, and this is our second point, his love for God and people. Look with me. Uh, at verses, we'll read verses 13 to 15 so we get the whole context again. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake. So that, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Did you notice in verse 14 that Paul says, he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Who's he talking about? Well, since... 2 Corinthians begins with a greeting from Paul and Timothy. I think it stands to reason that he and Timothy are probably the us in the verse, and the you is the Corinthian church. And so part of Paul's faith includes his certainty that not only will he be raised and brought into God's presence, but that the Corinthian church would too. In fact, that's what he's laboring for. He says in chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. 
But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul knows that we all are going to appear before God for judgment. And when that day comes, he wants the Corinthians to stand pure before the Lord. He wants them to stay faithful all the way to the end. He wants them to make it all the way home. This is so much on his mind that when he lists the way he suffers in chapter 11, remember that list we read a moment ago? He says in verses 28 and 29, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches who is weak and I am not weak, who is made to fall and I am not indignant. Paul doesn't want them to throw in the towel. He doesn't want them to walk away from the faith. And if they reject him as an apostle, if they reject the gospel of Christ crucified that he preaches, if they follow those false teachers who came into town, that is exactly what they are doing, walking away. And so he sacrificially labors and suffers affliction on their behalf. He lays down his life for them. He says it emphatically in verse 15 of our chapter this morning of chapter 4, for it is all for your sake. We're in this together, Bethel. We need each other. I need you to help me keep my eyes on Jesus, and you need me to help you. We are prone to wonder, and the Lord has put us and each other's lives so that we can collectively walk the narrow path. Living this way is not easy. It wasn't for Paul. It's not going to be for us. It's going to involve sacrifice. And sometimes, honestly, I don't want to die. I want to do what is easy and comfortable for me. Laying down my life seems hard. I death. But we have to, by the Spirit's help, push against that impulse. One, because it is a selfishness that is out of step with the gospel that we've believed. Jesus selflessly died for me and was raised. And because that's true, I have all the motivation in the world to sacrificially serve others. And two, because if God intends to use me to keep my brothers and sisters faithful, my refusal to lay down my life at best doesn't aid anybody and at worst actually works toward their harm. Yes, it's true that God will preserve everyone in Christ to the end, but if I am not striving to keep my brother faithful, God will save my brother not because of me, but in spite of me. C.S. Lewis, in The Weight of Glory, puts it this way. It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it and the backs of the proud will be broken. 
It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. This does not mean that we are to be, that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play but our merriment must be of that kind, and it is, in fact, the merriest kind which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. And our charity must be a real and costly love with deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner no mere tolerance or indulgence which parodies love as flippancy parodies merriment. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If he is your Christian neighbor, he is holy in almost the same way. For in him also Christ, the glorifier and the glorified, glory himself is truly hidden. So let's lay down our lives for each other. Let's strive for something better. Let's follow in the footsteps of Paul and, more importantly, Jesus and die to ourselves for the sake of others. And that goes beyond this church. Let's sacrificially point our friends and coworkers and classmates and kids and neighbors to Jesus. There is a great banquet coming where everyone who trusts in Christ will sit with him at table and let's say to those people God has put in our lives, I want you seated beside me. And because that's true, I'm going to do everything I can, whether it costs me my comfort, my pride, or even my life to make sure you make it to the feast. If you're with us today and you aren't a Christian, Please allow me to make that plea to you now. One day, we are all going to stand before God, the judge of all the earth, and I don't want you to be there on your own merit. And the good news of the gospel is you don't have to. That's what the gospel is all about. That's why it's good news. You have sinned against your eternal creator, and for that, you deserve eternal punishment. But if you will turn away from your rebellion against God and trust Jesus, who died for sinners and rose from the dead to save you, he will. He doesn't ask for your good works. He doesn't want your best efforts. He only asks that you come to him with the empty hands of faith and trust him. And when you do, when you trust Jesus to save you, God will credit Jesus' perfect righteousness to your account. He will declare you 
not guilty, but righteous instead, so that when the day comes when you stand before God, you won't be there in your own merit, but on the merit of Jesus that God has given to you. That is good news. If you have questions, if you want to talk more, please do it. Don't wait. Talk to somebody today. Come get me after the service. I would love to chat with you. I would love to set up a time to meet with you and talk more. There is nothing more important than this. As this gospel gets proclaimed, as we labor for the sake of others so that they experience the grace of God, not only does it serve them, but God gets the glory. Notice what Paul says in verse 15. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Paul's motivated by his love for people, yes, but his supreme desire is for his God to get the glory he's due. And that happens by proclaiming the gospel as the good news of Jesus goes forth from his suffering saints and as sinners respond to it in faith, thanksgiving increases to God's glory because without God and without his grace toward us, salvation is impossible. So God's glory is Paul's supreme motivation and it should be ours too. We should want to please our Father and to see others come to know and love and worship him. So let's cultivate that desire by pursuing God in his word and in prayer, by daily reminding ourselves of the gospel of God's grace toward us and living in light of it, by denying ourselves and serving God and neighbor. What brings Paul joy is seeing people happy and God getting the glory. Let's strive for that. And for those moments when you are not there, when affliction for the sake of others feels like a death to you instead of a delight, keep your eyes on Jesus. Pray that God would change your heart and act. Move forward and act. Faithfully do what God has called you to do and trust him to change you. So what is it that enables Paul to persevere in ministry in spite of affliction? It's his faith in God who raises the dead. It's his love for God and people. And then lastly, and this is our third point, his renewed vision. Look at verses 16 to 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. So Paul begins in verse 16 with that conclusion. So we do not lose heart. Lose heart there meaning something like shrink back from declaring the gospel. Verses 13 to 15 have got him here. 
his trust in the Lord, his faith about his own future that springs up from the resurrection of Jesus enables him to press on in the ministry God has given him. And now in these verses, he continues and he focuses on another aspect of that faith, specifically that God is doing something glorious in him through his suffering. His outer self, that which is mortal and temporary, that which experiences suffering and death and decay is wasting away. Some people, like the false teachers who came into Corinth, they see that and they say, there is no way this guy is a true apostle. True apostles of the Lord do not wither like this. They don't have eyes to see what's really happening, but Paul does. While his outer self is wasting away, his inner self, that which is in Christ and being transformed, is being renewed day by day. David Garland, the guy who compares this to the picture of Dorian Gray, he describes it like this. He says, as his, that's Paul's, outward life conforms ever more closely to the crucified Christ, his inward life conforms ever more closely to the glorified Christ. That is beautiful. God is doing that in you if you are in Christ. He's doing a good, supernatural, transformative work in Paul. He began it when he opened Paul's eyes to the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God, and he is continuing it. Paul puts it beautifully in chapter 3, verse 18. He says there, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So do you see what's happening here? With the eyes of faith, Paul is looking past what's on the outside to see the true nature of things, what God is really doing in him and through him through his sacrificial Christ-like ministry. God is molding him more and more day by day into the image of Jesus who died on the cross and was raised on his behalf. And this radically affects the way that Paul views affliction. To some, it may seem unattractive. To some, that might seem like loss. To some, that might even seem like divine disapproval, that God cannot be happy with Paul if Paul is suffering like this. But Paul knows better. The affliction he experiences in his ministry, while it does contribute to his physical decay, has a wonderful opposite, reverse effect. It's working for his good. That's why he can say in verse 17, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. By that, he doesn't mean that his suffering wasn't or isn't hard. He knows that it was and that it is. Remember what he says in chapter 1, verse 8. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. He knows affliction is not easy. But when he compares it 
with the eternal weight of glory that is coming to him and with the knowledge that God is using that affliction to produce that glory, it seems to him light and momentary. As he keeps his eyes on the Lord and what God is doing, the affliction, which at one time seemed so large, gets smaller. But notice that that mindset, it doesn't just happen for him. It's not necessarily automatic, that it just comes. Paul sees affliction for the sake of the gospel as light and temporary because his eyes are on what God is doing in him and ultimately what God will do for him. Listen to verses 17 and 18 again. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So how do we put all of this together? I think we can say at least three things. If you're a Christian, God is renewing you and making you more like Jesus. It may not feel like it at times, it may be hard at times, but it is happening. So trust him. When serving God and others feels hard or laborious, trust that God is changing you and others through your ministry. Trust that God will give you the strength that you need every day. Seek him. Ask him for it. Remind yourself of the ways you see this inner renewal taking place and praise God for it. Do the same in other people. Let's be diligent to call out the ways that we see God is transforming one another and give him praise. Community group is a great place to do that. Let me encourage you. This is a community group Sunday for most of us. Today, take time to stop and praise God for the ways that you see him working in each other's lives. And draw encouragement from that. So that's one. Two, if you're a Christian and if, you are a fa- if you're facing affliction and suffering, especially for your work of gospel ministry, regardless of where that is or how that plays out, know that it is not in vain that God is working for your good and that he is using that affliction and your labor for the good of others. That's not to minimize suffering, but rather to encourage us to keep our eyes on the grand scheme of eternity. Affliction, though it is and can be excruciating and make you feel like You just can't make it another day. It is a divine means of grace to prepare you for eternity and to enable you to more effectively minister to others. Any suffering you experience now for faithfully living in light of the gospel pales in comparison to what God has in store for you. It can't compete with glory. So keep trusting in Jesus. If you are suffering and feeling that, that weight, wait 
on Jesus. Keep going in the meantime. Keep believing the gospel. Keep trusting Jesus to deliver and keep going about the ministry that the Lord has called you to, even if it is costly to you, because in the end, it will all be worth it. And then three, keep your eyes on your bright future in Christ. If our hope is in this world and our desires are directed to what this world has to offer us, we will be sorely disappointed and run the risk of bearing the resemblance of something that is passing away. One commentator says it like this, hope and its desires are the engines that drive us. The pursuit of a greater good in the future is the sole motive strong enough to bring about a willing and persevering self-denial in the present. Only the eternal glory can outweigh the burdens of this world. If what we consider to be good remains identified with what this world has to offer, perhaps even rationalized as the blessing of God, our lives will inevitably become worldly. Such an outcome is inescapable. As Paul put it from the perspective of his own culture, if all we have to look forward to is life on earth, then let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Without confidence in our future resurrection and a growing longing for what exaltation with Christ will mean, the call of the gospel loses its transforming power. Our hopes determine our habits. Made for God's presence, we are a future-determined people. In order to not lose heart now, the world to come, not this one, must captivate our minds. So, seek the Lord in His Word. Seek Him in prayer. Pour out your heart to Him. Cast your anxieties on Him, knowing that He cares for you, that He is with you, that He is working for your good, that He will never leave you nor forsake you. And fight to believe that He is doing something miraculous in you right now, that He is using everything that comes your way, all things, including affliction, to prepare you for glory. Look to the future that C.S. Lewis describes in The Way to Glory. He says, In the end, that face, which is the delight or the terror of the universe, must be turned upon each of us, either with one expression or with the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. The promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son, it seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. That is the bright future that is coming to us from our gracious God. So let's keep our eyes fixed on him all the while faithfully, joyfully, sacrificially serving God and others. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Lord, we are grateful for you. We are grateful for the cross. 
Lord, I pray that more and more you would make us uh, into a people uh, who embody cruciform ministry, that we joyfully lay down our lives for the sake of others and for your glory. Do it, Lord, by your Spirit's power. Be transforming us. Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen.